Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. As you know, the Supreme Court of the United States uh, begins its uh, term the first Monday in October. October, a good uh, time to uh, take a look at a new book out from uh, Shadow Mountain. It's called Supreme Power, Seven Pivotal Supreme Court Decisions That Had a Major Impact on America. The author is New York Times bestselling author and senior uh, federal judge in Utah, Ted Stewart. In this book, Ted Stewart explains how the Supreme Court and its nine appointed members now stand at a crucial point in their power to hand down momentous and far-ranging decisions. As Judge Stewart says, today's court affects every major area of American life, from health care to civil rights, from abortion to marriage. In the book, he reveals the complex history of the court is told through seven pivotal decisions. These cases originally seemed narrow in scope, but they vastly expanded the interpretation of law. Ted Stewart was appointed a United States District Court judge in 1999 by President Bill Clinton. Prior to that, he served as Chief of Staff to Utah Governor Michael Levitt, as Executive Director of the State Department of Natural Resources, and as a member of Chairman of the Public Service Commission, as Chief of Staff to Congressman Jim Hansen. He's been a visiting professor at two state universities, teaching courses on the Supreme Court, the Constitution, and public policy. And he's the best-selling author previously of The Miracle of Freedom, Seven Tipping Points That Saved the World. And uh, we spoke with Judge Stewart in late September. So no phone calls for this conversation, but you uh, could email us if you have a response. And we'll get those on at the breaks. The email is upraxcess at uh, gmail.com. Let me start with the purpose behind this book. Why, why did you... Uh why did you want to uh, treat the Supreme uh, Court with the new book, which, by the way, is Supreme Power, Seven Pivotal Supreme Court Decisions That Had a Major Impact on America. And our guest is uh, Ted Stewart. Well, Tom, uh, to answer the question, I have been teaching a class uh, at Utah State University for over 10 years now on how the Supreme Court has shaped America. And inevitably, at the end of the course, uh, I've had students express some amazement as they have learned how much of the America that we live in today has, in fact, been shaped by decisions of nine lawyers on the Supreme Court. So I've been very much aware of it, kind of in the abstract, but uh, two years ago in a case, uh, the Oberfeld case, which was the same-sex marriage case, a dissent was, um, was written by Justice Scalia, where he made this observation, um, and I'm paraphrasing here, but he said, um, I do not much care about the marriage laws in America. I don't care what the states say about marriage. But I do care about who rules over me. And he then went on to say, this decision today tells me that my ruler and the ruler of 320 million Americans are nine lawyers on, well, five lawyers, I think he said, five lawyers on the Supreme Court. And that kind of brought home to me that very real fact that to a very large extent, many of the most important decisions that are being made about uh, about America, uh, the, the rights, the liberties of the people, the nature of our government, etc., are in fact made by um, the Supreme Court. And the Supreme Court is unique in, in that uh, presidents will come and go, presidential agendas will change, congresses will come and go, but once the Supreme Court makes a constitutional interpretation. That interpretation remains until either the Constitution is amended, which happens very rarely, or the Supreme Court reverses itself in a subsequent decision, and that happens very rarely as well. And in that sense, the, the Supreme Court is supreme, and um, it, uh, it then begs a question that I would ask anyone who thinks about this or who perchance reads my book, are they in fact comfortable with that role of the Supreme Court in our lives? Yeah, well, I'm wondering. Um, do you think the students are representative? I guess in in my mind there are. It's probably a minority of, of people, but there are some people who definitely see this. And for example, presidential elections—that's their number one reason for voting for president because they they want to shape the court one way or the other. But. Uh, I guess it's uh, maybe the the uh, populace as a whole would would follow that uh, demographic of your students maybe not not aware of the uh, of the power of the court. I, I think that there are many many Americans who do not who 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 well let me let me suggest uh, we approach it this way in a very recent poll by the Annenberg Public Policy Institute I think is called. 
in Pennsylvania, the question was asked of a group of Americans if they could name all three branches of government, and only 26% of them could do so. Um, it, it is a little bit alarming to me that more Americans do not care. And, and what's interesting to me, Tom, is that there are some who care very, very much. And because they do, um, the rest of the Americans are at their mercy. And let me give you an example. With the nomination of the most recent addition to the court, uh, Justice Gorsuch, there was a, a campaign, um, nationwide campaign. And uh, from what I have been uh, able to read, literally millions of dollars were spent in ads and such to encourage senators to either uh, vote to uh, confirm the new justice or not to confirm. And so it became more or less a political campaign. And I think if there is anything that is disturbing about that, it's twofold. Number one, it again suggests that those people who care enough to spend money to, uh, to help determine who is to be on the court, they're the ones who are making the decision and, and the population uh, of the country as a whole or not. And secondly, I think it reinforces my point that the people now realize that the Supreme Court has become so important that it is worth the donation and expenditure of large sums of money to assure that only the person that, that you want or do not want ends up on that court. Um, so you ask a question, you know, do, do you really want the Supreme Court to have that much power? And I think that some would answer, uh, yes, I guess as long as they rule <laughs> in my favor, because the other two branches of government aren't giving me the justice or the redress that, uh, that I want. I, I think you're absolutely right. I think if anyone reads this book and, and looks at the seven cases I, I uh, discuss. I'm sure that, uh, in particular, in regards to some of those of the more recent vintage, that they will say, well, you bet, I agree with that conclusion, and I'm very happy with the fact that it's being made by five lawyers on the Supreme Court. I'm sure that there are some people who may say, well, I agree with the decision, but maybe it's not right that it's being made by the Supreme Court. Maybe we should have let the elected representatives make these decisions. And I'm sure there are some readers who disagree with all of them. But, but I think you, you suggest something very important, Tom, and that is that, that both sides of the political equation find themselves unhappy with court decisions on occasion. Um, Citizens United, the, the case where the Supreme Court a few years ago um, gave a green light to, to uh, political activity by corporations, um, uh, is a is a case that has been very much uh, criticized by those of a, a more liberal or progressive bent. Um, certainly, the the Oberfell uh, same-sex marriage decision has been criticized by those of more conservative bent. So, both sides of the political equation, as I say, can find themselves um, disturbed with what the Supreme Court has done, and I think that that is one reason why both sides. Of political equation perhaps ought to be sobered as they come to realize how much power the Supreme Court now has. I wonder if you could take us back, you do in the book, um, to what the, at least in your view, the, the founders, their view of what the Supreme Court uh, would, would, would do, would be. It's, it's you know, really quite clear that the fight over the Constitution um, of 1787 was drawn between Federalists and Anti-Federalists, and Anti-Federalists were against it. And one of the primary arguments against it, the Constitution as, as crafted in 1787, was that it gave too much power and independence to the judiciary, the Supreme Court in particular. Um, Alexander Hamilton responded to that, and in the Federalist Papers, he said, you don't need to worry, because we will have judges that will simply um, make judgment. They will not impose their will. And those were the words he used, judgment, not will. Um, judgment suggests that they contemplated that the judges, whether the Supreme Court or the lower courts that were to be created by Congress, would sit and cut more or less like an umpire and call balls and strikes uh, and not be, and not to be imposing a political philosophy that they may themselves possess. 
we all suggest that the second alternative, and that again is that judges would be sitting and imposing a political philosophy through their judgments. So the founders most assuredly did not contemplate uh, judges uh, at any level um, using their their independence uh, to impose a political or philosophical viewpoint on the on the population through their judgments. Um, the early early decisions by the Supreme Court, in particular one that I discussed in the book, the Marbury versus Madison decision, um, was a very a very clear. Uh, example of exercising uh, judgment, not will, by uh, the court saying, in effect, well, we're bound by the Constitution. The Constitution doesn't give us a specific power, which in that instance was the right to to issue a writ of mandamus, uh, a writ that tells a public official what to do. And so, you know, the early courts understood that. It actually was another 50 years before the Supreme Court even invalidated another act of Congress. It was 1856. But thereafter, the Supreme Court and other courts have assumed to themselves more and more authority over decisions uh, at first of the federal government and the state government, and uh, to the point today where some are very concerned with the extent to which they involve themselves in, in seemingly every aspect of our lives and uh, uh, and perhaps uh, in an injudicious way, which I guess is something that each each individual will get to decide for themselves whether they agree or disagree with that that contention. You're listening to Access U Time, Tom Williams, and we are hearing my conversation recorded in uh, sep- uh, late September with uh, senior federal judge uh, Ted Stewart author of a new book, Supreme Power, Seven Pivotal Supreme Court Decisions That Had a Major Impact on America. October, a timely uh, time to talk about the Supreme Court, the beginning of uh, their term. Uh, In the next uh, segment, we'll get into uh, talking about judicial philosophy, the ongoing, very important uh, uh, debate between originalists and living constitutionalists. It's coming up in the next part of our conversation following this break. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and the Cache Valley Visitors Bureau featuring community concerts in Logan's Tabernacle Monday to Friday and celebrating 50 years at the Kane Lyric Theater and 25 years at Utah Festival Opera and Musical Theater. More information available online at explorelogan.com. America is littered with abandoned movie theaters. I actually photographed my 99th closed theater and I get emails from people saying, my grandmother told me she used to go here with my grandfather. A new generation rediscovers the pleasure palaces of the past. Sometimes you do just have to be there. Next time on To the Best of Our Knowledge from PRX. Join us Sunday morning at 9 on Utah Public Radio. You're listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We're talking about the Supreme Court on the program today with the senior federal judge Ted Stewart. Uh, he's a New York Times bestselling author previously of The Miracle of Freedom, Seven Tipping Points That Saved the World. His new book out from Shadow Mountain is Supreme Power, Seven Pivotal Supreme Court Decisions That Had a Major Impact on America. I want to get into it, a few of these cases. You, you, you treat seven cases here. And, and, and the trend here in your book is the expanding power of the court, right? The, the, the taking more and more on. Um, I, I wonder, just overall, before we jump into some of those, where you think that, uh, you know, it, it, I think your premise is too much power, at least some people think it's too much power now. Where should it be rolled back to if we were to kind of an ideal state? Well, that That is an excellent question, but I'm not going to get, be able to give you a very good answer, okay? I will admit that up front. In that same Oberfell decision, Chief Justice Roberts made the observation that the decision of the Supreme Court in that specific case <clears throat> did harm to the our system of government because it, it, it removed from the people <clears throat> the opportunity to make decisions. Um, and I think he he referred to the fact that that uh, the American Revolution was fought over the right to self-govern, and uh, and by having uh, five lawyers on the Supreme Court make a decision that it did in that case 
that <clears throat> that eroded the opportunity for the people through their elected representatives to make their own decisions. Um, the point I'm trying to make is that um, I, I don't think that I could ever identify a uh, specific limit on, on the judiciary's independence. Uh, I benefit from it. Uh, I think the founders clearly intended that the judiciary be independent, <clears throat> but I do think that it is important that all judges at every level have a certain amount of humility where they recognize that there are some issues that they ought not to get involved in because they just simply don't have the ability to discern the correct decision. Um, if, if I may give an example, yes, back in the early 19, 1960s, uh, there was a, a case, Baker versus Carr. Uh, I don't discuss it in the book. I could have. It's a very important one, but but the case involved the question of the makeup of state legislatures. And prior to that, the majority of state legislatures in this country had one body that was based on population, like our House of Representatives in Congress. But the other body, the Senate usually, was based on some factors other than pure population, like our U.S. Senate, where you have two senators from every state regardless of population. The Supreme Court decided that that was not good, and they demanded that every state legislature, both bodies, be based upon the uh, population. <clears throat> um, there was a very prominent member of the Supreme Court, Felix Frankfurter, who had been on the court uh, since the 1930s, I believe it was, perhaps the early 40s, uh, an icon on the court, a very famous member of the court, who was so disturbed by the Supreme Court getting into that whole area of political decision-making, that he wrote a very powerful dissent, and shortly thereafter he had a stroke and he died. And some have said it was because he was so heartbroken at the Supreme Court going into that area of, of politics. But he made a comment uh, in his dissent, which, which I firmly believe in, believe in, and that is that, that the people of the United States have got to understand that the judiciary cannot be the way to solve every bit of political mischief. And sadly, in my judgment, the Supreme Court has continued to ignore that, that uh, advice, and those who bring lawsuits have most certainly encouraged the judiciary as a whole, and the Supreme Court specifically, to try to solve every bit of judicial mischief. I don't think that's healthy. I think that what is far more valuable and far more representative of what the founders intended for this country is that we have an energized electorate. That we have the people who care enough about something that they make decisions in who they elect and, and how they lobby and get those elected representatives to vote for whatever they think ought to be the case instead of turning to the courts to solve what they think to be a political mischief. Um, if you just joined us, we're talking with uh, Ted Stewart. He's a senior federal judge. His uh, latest book is Supreme Power, Seven Pivotal Supreme Court Decisions That Had a Major Impact on America. And uh, you heard uh, Judge Stewart uh, talk about how he uh, he benefits from judicial independence. Uh, maybe just parenthetically, and then I want to follow up on, on what uh, Justice Frankfurter said, his standard there. Uh, so you're a senior federal judge. You're... you're Kind of retired, but federal judges, when they retire, still take cases, right? You don't, you don't, uh, you would, don't completely get put is, out to pasture. Um, is that when, when we reach the age that we could retire, we we can, okay, or we can continue what is known as senior status. And and uh, in my case, I have half as many cases assigned to me as an active judge, and I I keep my uh, office, my chambers, my law clerks, uh, the courtroom, and so on. Um, I guess continue on a reduced caseload. So that's what uh, what a senior judge is in the federal system. Okay, I, I guess I'd misunderstood that maybe you couldn't retire. You were you were in you were in you were in it for you know lifetime appointment. I guess you can retire if you want, or you can go to senior status. Okay, yeah, yeah, exactly. The lifetime appointment is is the way where we are independent in that they, in that they can't get rid of us. Um, uh, the only way that a federal judge can be removed from office is to be impeached by the Congress, and in the 230 years of our nation's existence, there have only been eight federal judges that have been impeached 
by the House of Representatives and uh, removed from office by the Senate. So it's a, it is a very secure position, as yeah. was intended. Yeah. You, again, parenthetically, you, I guess uh, some would choose when they get to the age to retire, some would choose to take senior status. You, I guess you'd still want to keep a hand in, still want to uh, try cases? Yes. Yeah, it's, uh, it remains a very stimulating part of my life, and I'm, I'm fortunate, I know, to, to have this as an option. Mm-hmm. And uh, I guess with, with that reduced caseload, you're able to teach classes like at, at Utah State and other places, I guess. Uh, I've had the good fortune to teach at Utah State since 1991, with the exception of a couple of years, um, through several different jobs before I became a judge. Um, but uh, more importantly, even than the teaching classes, I've been able to buy a, a little ranch in the north end of Cache Valley, and uh, that's where my heart is most of the time. Oh, go oh, great. Yeah, excellent. Um, so I want to follow up. You you uh, you mentioned a standard that uh, Felix Frankfurter um, uh, mentioned that there's some areas that uh, the, the court should not weigh into that should be political, should be solved politically. That's yes. the way the founders set it up. Um, there are some areas where, where some at least have seen as intractable, and the political system is not solving those. And so they've been some people have been grateful when the court has weighed in. Uh, you have a Plessy versus Ferguson in, in your in your book where that a lot of people would find that the Supreme Court came down on the wrong side of the, the race issue. Of course, uh, many people would see Brown versus Board of Education as, as the court weighing in on the on the on the right side. And that would be I think that that issue would be one where you know some people would say that, you know the the states were not solving this. In fact, they were going the the wrong direction. The federal government was not solving. Congress was not moving as uh, as quickly as they, they should have or in the right direction. And so they're grateful the court stepped in. And absolutely, there is no doubt that the Supreme Court must have been involved in those cases as as well as many of the others that, that I've discussed. And, and the vast majority of cases ever decided by the Supreme Court. But you raised the question of Plessy, and Tom, would it be okay if I just mention that in a little yes, bit? Yes, yes, definitely. Um, one of the more interesting things in writing uh, nonfiction books is, is how much one learns, and this is certainly an example of that. Um, it, briefly, after the American Civil War, the, the, the African-American slaves were freed by a constitutional amendment, and in order to make certain that they were treated right by the states, the 14th Amendment was passed, which required the states to treat everyone equally, the Equal Protection Clause, and, and also said that no citizen could be de- deprived of life, liberty, or property without due process. Um, within a couple of years, the United States Congress passed uh, civil rights legislation, basically the same people who passed the 14th Amendment. And that civil rights legislation prohibited discrimination in public transportation. Um, in, that, in those days, it would have been stagecoaches and railroads. Uh, in restaurants and hotels and so on. And in the course of the debate over that legislation, somebody said, well, it will be okay if they have separate but equal facilities. And both the House of Representatives and the Senate said, no, separate but equal. It it does not meet with our standard under the civil rights legislation of of 1875. So 20 years later, um, much to my surprise, um, I, I learned that there had been um, a a period of, of really widespread acceptance of African Americans into the culture of the South in particular. Uh, people from the North would go to the South expecting to find horrible racism and discrimination, and, and many of them were surprised at the, its absence. In fact, a number of them made the observation that there was far more racism in the North than there was in the South. Uh, and, um, of course, there was always... Uh, an undercurrent of racism. There was violence, there were lynchings, there were there were riots, there was racism within the South. But, but surprisingly to me, I learned that, that there was a, a, an accommodation of African Americans that, that was very wholesome and, and encouraging for the future. But then in the 1890s, the state of Louisiana passed a bill that said that there would be separate but equal railroad cars. And it went to the Supreme Court, and in the case of Plessy, the Supreme Court, instead of relying on what was intended by the 14th Amendment, uh, as reflected in the votes of the House and the Senate just a few years later, they went with what they thought was the, the then tied and 
said separate but equal was our right. And by that decision, they sanctioned state-sponsored segregation. They, they sponsored, or excuse me, sanctioned state-sponsored racism. And thereafter, Jim Crow laws began to be found throughout the South. Jim Crow laws are, are all those laws that, that prohibited African Americans from participation in the public sphere. I kept them from using restrooms and going to restaurants. And, and it, it, it's just an incredible array of, of laws that separated the races. But it was sanctioned by the Supreme Court. And it was not until Brown versus Board of Education in 1954, um, almost six years later, that the Supreme Court did reverse itself and say separate but equal, at least in public education, was wrong. Uh, it was unconstitutional. And they got it right, finally. But much harm had been done in the meantime. And subsequent to that, within a few years, we had the 1964 Civil Rights Act and so on that, again, began to undo the harm that was done by the Supreme Court and Plessy. But but I, I argue in the book, some may or may not agree with me, but I do believe that the tension that we have um, in our nation today, the race relations that are still uh, embroiled in controversy, may very well be all tied back to that Supreme Court decision of, uh, of the late 1890s. You you believe that uh, if it had been left up to legislatures and, and, and Congress that uh, things might have moved faster in the, in the right direction? I think if the Supreme Court had not given the green light to separate but equal, if they would have, in fact, stuck to what was intended by the 14th Amendment, that uh, we would not have had Jim Crow laws around the country. Hmm. So that was certainly a case where the Supreme Court had to be involved. I don't question that at all. I just disagree with the decision that they made. Um, what about to, taking it forward to the Brown versus Board? Do you think that that was a necessary uh, step in Absolutely by the, the Supreme Court? Okay. They, they had to undo the harm that they had done to the nation with Plessy versus Ferguson. And um, uh, and again, if, if the Supreme Court in, in Brown versus Board of Education simply made a decision which was intended by those who passed the 14th Amendment in the first case. I wonder if you could uh, you treat this in your introduction. Um, give us your uh, you know short answer on originalist interpretation versus living constitutionalist. This is uh, you know it's a raging debate. We have some of each on the current uh, Supreme Court, I believe. We do indeed, Tom. You're absolutely right. Um, an originalist is, is a, a a judge or justice who who believes that it is their responsibility to. In, in interpreting the Constitution, um, try to discern what the founders intended or what the people who who ratified the Constitution understood the language to be. Um, we are a nation that takes pride in, in uh, being subject to the rule of law. That, in my mind, demands that there be a basic law that we begin with, a foundation, and that we build upon. And in my mind, that, rule, that uh, basic law is the Constitution. And I think this notion that we had to exercise judgment in interpreting the Constitution was, was well understood as the only way to, uh, to make decisions interpreting the Constitution for most of our early history of the country. Uh, a living uh, constitutional um, uh, method of, of constitutional interpretation says that, you know, times change, our, our society changes, and the Constitution has to change with it. And the Supreme Court or other judges or justices have got to make decisions to allow that evolution to take place. Um, as you suggest, there are different uh, members of the current Supreme Court who uh, believe very firmly in, in the originalist view and, and other members who believe in the living or evolving Constitution. Um, and uh, it... Uh, it applies not only to interpret, interpretation of the Constitution, but it would apply to any time that we're asked to interpret a statute passed by Congress, um, what was intended by this Congress when they passed this law that we have to now interpret and, and attempt to <clears throat> give uh, a meaning to in the case before us. So uh, one or the other methods is used frequently uh, by judges uh, every day and by justices 
every term. And in either case, it's unavoidable, isn't it, that um, even if you want to minimize it, that, uh, you know, personal background, um, you know, feelings, uh, personal history would 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 come into it somehow, even subconsciously, I would think, or no? No, you're right, Tom. Uh, it it is <clears throat> it is a, a very for those. I I will confess that I I consider myself an originalist. I I believe that, that was that when I take an oath to support defend the Constitution of the United States, that means I've got to interpret it consistent with the Constitution as as it was originally. Um, uh, ratified uh, by the people of the United States all those many years ago. Uh, so I am an originalist, but I will confess that there are times when when uh, I have to make decisions that that uh, I I find myself thinking, well, you know, is this is this the right decision? Is that is, and is that consistent with with my originalist view? I don't interpret the Constitution often. I do interpret statutes often. And it's far far more often than in the case of interpreting a statute that I find myself thinking, was this what was intended by that Congress and that president to sign that bill? But do I agree with him or disagree with him? And I have to force myself to to say it doesn't matter. Uh, they have the right to do it. And, and I'll, I'll give you an example. I will confess that that Congress has has imposed a, a number of minimum mandatory sentences in certain criminal cases in federal court, and there are many occasions when I have to impose an minimum mandatory sentence that I am most uncomfortable with, that Congress has dictated, Congress has the right to do so, um, but I do so begrudgingly. Um, but, and there are many other cases that I have had to rule when I, if it had been up to me, I would not have ruled the way I had to, but I, I still believe it was my obligation to um, try to enforce the, the law as the Congress intended, or on those rare occasions when I interpret the case, the Constitution as the founders intended it. So, uh, uh, what I hear you saying is, you, you, I guess you have to acknowledge those, those things. There might be some personal feelings, personal biases. Consciously recognize that and counteract that. Exactly. Hmm. Um, I think that it, it, as painful as it as it oftentimes is. I have to stop myself and say, uh, is that Ted Stewart uh, speaking, or or am I honestly doing what I think the, the Congress intended me to do? And, and and I have to force myself to say, it's not for a Ted Stewart to decide. It was for those women and men who were elected by uh, the people who made this decision, and uh, that should end it. You're listening to Access U Time, Tom Williams, and we're talking with senior federal judge Ted Stewart. He's a New York Times bestselling author previously of uh, The Miracle of Freedom, Seven Tipping Points That Saved the World. His new book is Supreme Power, Seven Pivotal Supreme Court Decisions That Had a Major Impact on America. A uh, note to listeners, uh, this uh, conversation is recorded. Uh, so we're not taking your uh, phone calls. Um, we recorded this conversation a couple of weeks ago, uh, but I uh, wanted to, to bring this to you. Some very uh, timely uh, topics here. Um, and in the next segment, the last segment of the program, after a break, we're going to uh, apply this uh, judicial philosophy argument that uh, on, is ongoing between originalists and living constitutionalists. We're going to apply that specifically to the right to privacy and Roe v. Wade. Many other topics to be discussed as well. More following the break. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and the Cache Valley Visitors Bureau, presenting Living History at the American West Heritage Center, featuring mountain men, pioneers, and turn-of-the-century farmers. Activities include pony rides, tomahawk throwing, and ragdoll making. Information available at explorelogan.com. The next time you stream your favorite TV show, think about this. One hour of high-definition video requires 5 terabytes of data, a file way too big to send to your living room. So how does YouTube or Netflix stream all that content? The answer is data compression. Data compression takes all of the data in a movie or song and squeezes out the redundant parts. The compressed file is then reconstructed using specialized circuit chips built into our TVs and devices. Electrical and computer engineers at Utah State University developed some of the early data compression tools. 
In fact, it was a team at USU that built a compression and coding system that became QuickTime version 2.0. Support on Utah Public Radio for Creating Tomorrow is provided in part by our members and the College of Engineering at Utah State University with graduate and undergraduate degrees in electrical and computer engineering. Information at engineering.usu.edu. Thanks for listening to Access U Time. Tom Williams. We've reached our last segment now uh, with Ted Stewart. He's author most recently of Supreme Power, Seven Pivotal Supreme Court Decisions That Had a Major Impact on America. Ted Stewart is a senior federal judge uh, in Utah, and uh, we uh, had this conversation a couple of weeks ago, so no phone calls uh, in this hour, but uh, interesting uh, topic, especially timely in October. The first Monday in October is, uh, of course, the traditional beginning of the uh, U.S. Supreme Court's uh, new term each year. Uh, we continue now our discussion with uh, Ted Stewart. I'm interested then to get your, your, your uh, you know, now that you've, you've said you're an originalist, um, uh, you have a, a case in the book, and then the, the Lochner versus State uh, of New York. The title of this chapter: How a Law and Baker's Working Hours Led to Abortion Rights. Um, it so uh, have you to talk about that, but uh, where we got to with this, and it's it's been settled, uh, you know, in Roe versus Wade. Uh, but uh, you know, a right to privacy, which I don't know, an originalist would might say search high and low and there's there's you know that word's not in the constitution and that would take a living constitutionalist to come up with that wouldn't it i i think you're exactly right and i think that that is is how it happened um if i may just briefly address the lochner case it it was a case involving in new york state state law where they uh, the state of new york new york said that bakers cannot require their employees to work more than a certain number of hours in a given week, and um, the United States Supreme Court discerned that there was, in fact, uh, within the defi- definition of liberty in the Fourteenth Amendment, a right for um, an employee to contract with an employer for any number of hours they wanted to. They, in fact, uh, the Supreme Court, in fact, said we get to decide what the word liberty means. And in that case, liberty includes the right to contract. Um, that that line of reasoning, um, where uh, which in, in essence is that the Supreme Court gets to decide what liberty means, uh, was then followed for about thirty years in in a large number of cases that were very perplexing to Americans, and, and in particular those Americans who were trying to bring about reforms uh, uh, in labor and and. Uh, the environment and so on, because the Supreme Court was making up uh, all kinds of, of definitions of what liberty meant that, uh, that put an end to that kind of legislation. And in the 1930s, basically, the, the, the Lochner theory was abandoned, saying, no, there's no longer any, any support for the idea that uh, liberty means the right to contract in that way. But it was resurrected again, as you suggested, and I think very Absolutely, that in the privacy cases, beginning with with uh, some of those that immediately preceded Roe versus Wade, the Supreme Court basically went back into the position of saying, "We get to define liberty." Um, and you may say, "Well, certainly that that uh, that should be the role of a court, and it is." But the question is: is in de- defining liberty, do you have to at least tether it in some way to the Constitution? or to what the founders intended by liberty, or in the case of the 14th Amendment, what those people who who wrote the 14th Amendment had it uh, passed out of Congress and then sent to the states for ratification, what did they understand liberty to mean? And this is where the controversy comes in, because I think uh, those who dissented in Roe versus Wade pointed out that there's just no way to, to surmise that the right to an abortion, but Specifically, putting the severe limitations on the on the states and their ability to regulate abortions, which is what the case was actually about. There's no way to to, to surmise that those who wrote the Fourteenth Amendment and ratified it really intended it to to say that a woman has an unlimited right to an abortion. Um, and so that's that's where the controversy comes in. So if you're if you get to define liberty 
without consideration of what it meant to those who, who wrote it originally, that is an in- incredible power that is vested in the courts. And I think the most uh, current reflection of that was the Oberfeld decision, where they said liberty includes the right to uh, same-sex marriage. Um, and those who dissented did so quite strongly, saying, you know, there's just, this is a right that has now been made up by five members of the court, um, and that is why the justices that I have referred to, Scalia, uh, Alito, and, and Roberts, and Thomas all said, you know, uh, we have hereby deprived the people of the opportunity to make this decision with their elected representatives. So. Hmm. Um, I, I suppose, you know, abortion rights activists, uh, same-sex marriage activists would say if you were to uh, remove the Supreme Court from this, uh, we would have a patchwork. Uh, it'd be state by state. And, for example, abortion rights activists would say a, a woman uh, would have a hard time getting an abortion if, if by luck of, you know, where she, where she lives. Shouldn't this all be standardized? The Supreme Court can play that role. Um. I think that um, <clears throat> the the founders um, intended that each state have certain amount of sovereignty. Um, most assuredly, a decision was made with the American Civil War and immediately thereafter that that sovereignty should not include the right to, uh, to slavery. I think legislation that has been passed since has made it clear that there are areas that, that uh, in the area of civil rights and et cetera, et cetera, where, where there has to be uh, uniformities. But I think the founders always intended that there, that there be a little bit of, of separation between the federal government and the states so that there could be um, experimentation within the states in certain areas. And, and the states should be able to reflect the nature of the people who populate those states. And it is, I think, observably true that there are vast differences between the people of, say, uh, the state of Utah and those who reside in a state such as California or New York, and that those ought to, uh, those states ought to have the ability um, to um, have a culture, uh, an economy, uh, a regulatory scheme, many other things that are different from the other states. Uh, the, the, the question is, is, is what areas um, is, should the states be required to, a, a, to a, uh, accept and, and comply with a, a uniform um, uh, belief or, or practice or regulatory scheme or whatever? And that's a debate that's ongoing and will be ongoing for a long time. Uh, and the Supreme Court will play a role in that most certainly. And I, I guess at the very least, this uh, this illustrates the, the the great import of many of the issues that end up in front of the Supreme Court, um, yes. whether they're decided yes. accepted by the court or not. Um, so um, I wonder. I want to go back to this, uh, you know, the right to privacy, and this kind of gets into this is a, a a crux of the argument between originalists and living constitutionalists. Living constitutionalists would say, and by the way, you, um, as an originalist, I think your your description in the book of living constitutionalists is very fair. I, I hear, you know, more snarky descriptions on either side, uh, so yours is respectful. Um, living constitutionalists would, would say that, um, you know, issues like this, uh, maybe technological issues and other issues, weren't even existing at the time of the, the Constitution. So... Uh, because the document is a living document, uh, we have to do our best to, uh, uh, to, to apply the document to the issues of today. And I think that's a fair, fair characterization of what they think, and I think the, the place where I would, would um, or the way I would respond to that is the Constitution is a written document. It's not alive. It's a written document, but it does provide a means whereby it can be amended, where the words can be amended. And that is through the, the process of, of constitutional amendment, which in the end vests to the people the right to make a decision as to whether or not the Constitution should uh, be changed. And, and, and undoubtedly, it, it has needed to be changed. Again, we've already made reference to those absolutely essential and wonderful amendments that came after the American Civil War that were intended to, to eliminate the vestiges of racism and slavery. 
So, um, so that is that is the basic question: uh, Is the Constitution to be changed by judicial fiat, and in particular by a majority of, of five on the Supreme Court, or is it to be changed by the the people through constitutional amendment? And and I think there is further, and we've already talked about this, Tom, to some extent, the, the idea that there are some things that that just should be left to the to the people and their elected representatives, short of of, of, of offending the Constitution or short of of harming one's clearly established constitutional rights. But there ought to be other areas where where the people and the elected representatives get to operate without the courts being involved. Um, all of that is is part of our wonderful system of of government that. Um, the, the people of this country get to take their side and they get to uh, make their arguments and in the end hopefully persuade those that matter uh, that they're right. Uh, and on, on occasion, every side wins and on other occasions, they lose. And that's part of this wonderful country we live in. I wonder, um, you know, the title of book, Supreme Power, Seven Pivotal Supreme Court Decisions That Had a Major Impact on America. Uh, Ted Stewart, the author, joins us. Um, I'm not sure how much you can say or, or want to say, but I'd, I'd, I'd be interested. Uh, whatever you feel you want to say on the on the nomination process, I think uh, people have recognized the you know the premise of your book. The the Supreme Court has uh, a lot of power, and therefore, um, you know, presidents try to read the tea leaves and to try to determine how that justice is going to rule for the next forty years. And then there's a big fight on either side, and it's kind of a kabuki theater in the nomination process where the nominee tries to say as little as possible. And, um, and it's just uh, it's, it's, it's a part of the whole polarized um, uh, climate that we live in. Well, you're absolutely right, and, and your description of the process is, is very accurate. But if, if, if nothing else, Tom, uh, again, I've already said this once, but I'll say it again. I think it makes the argument that I make in the book, and that is that the, the Supreme Court has become so important that um, and, and makes decisions that affect so much of what uh, we hold dear to us in America that it has become more or less a, a political process. Uh, I, I point out this, that... Uh, the only member of, well, the only only person from Utah ever appointed to the United States Supreme Court was a man named George Sutherland. Uh, he was appointed in 1922 by uh, President uh, Harding. Uh, in his case, his nomination was sent to the Congress. He was confirmed the same day by unanimous vote. Uh, George Sutherland was on a vacation in Europe. And he found out that he had been nominated and confirmed and was now a member of the Supreme Court by a note from the president where it was almost an aside. And the note, if you read it, you know, makes reference to, you know, thanks for inquiring about uh, Mrs. Harding's health and so on and so forth. And by the way, you're now a member of the Supreme Court. That was how the Supreme Court uh, nomination and confirmation process took place, you know, less than 100 years ago. But as the court has acquired more and more influence, it has become more and more a political football. And um, I guess it's up to each reader uh, and, and those who never will read the book to ask themselves the same question. Is this right? Is it what I'm comfortable with? Um, and um, ultimately, is there something I can do to change it if I don't like it? Hmm. Just a couple minutes left. Um I wonder if you could treat this is this is uh, ongoing very important issue. I think it's uh, probably uh, will be heating up again. Everson versus Board of Education of Ewing Township, um, religion in public life. It was a case where the Supreme Court um, began the process of adopting this notion that uh, religion and government must be separated, and um, the, the wall of separation. Uh, between church and state has become firmly established, so much so that um, much of, of what the states did and even the federal government did uh, for the first 
150 years of our existence is no longer permitted. Um, and it's ironic. It's in the Everson case, the uh, justices who adopted this notion that there should be a separation of church and state did so relying primarily on actions that were taken by Thomas Jefferson and James Madison when they were in the Virginia um, uh, House of Burgesses, the, the state legislature, um, dealing with the Virginia um, legislation on religious freedom. But what they ignored, or at least did not know when they came up with this notion, was that during the time that Thomas Jefferson and James Madison were in Washington, D.C. together, that they attended church in the House of Representatives. Uh, the House of Representatives was actually used for religious services in, up until the American Civil War. Um, I, I think that the Everson case is, is one of those cases where the Supreme Court misread the intent of the founders. And I, I do believe that subsequent decisions, which have, again, uh, established the wall separation higher and, and uh, the wall thicker, um, are, are perhaps decisions that uh, reflect a, a living, evolving constitutional interpretation, not that which was, was understood by the founders to be the intended um, relationship between religion and uh, the government in our nation. We'll reach the end of our time. Uh, interesting book, Supreme Power, Seven Pivotal Supreme Court Decisions That Had a Major Impact on America, out from Shadow Mountain. Uh, the author is uh, Senior Federal Judge uh, Ted Stewart. He's author previously of a New York Times bestseller, The Miracle of Freedom, Seven Tipping Points That Saved the World. Uh, Ted Stewart, thank you so much. Tom, thank you. appreciate it very much. And thanks for listening to Access uh, Utah. Uh, just a note about tomorrow's show. We will have in studio a live program, speculative fiction author and social critic Sarah Gailey. She's in Utah giving a series of talks and readings, a couple of those on the Utah State University campus. Uh, her River of Teeth novellas, a duology that follows a, a group of uh, hippopotamus wranglers on a blood-soaked journey down the Mississippi River, was published this year, was an Amazon bestseller. Uh, we'll be talking about that, of course. And uh, Sarah Gailey is a columnist for BarnesandNoble.com and Tor.com, tweets regularly on subjects like how to punch a Nazi and how to show up uh, gym rats under the handle uh, Gailey Fry, where she describes herself as a shrill feminist harpy and a bad influence. Her uh, recent uh, article on Tor.com is titled Facing Facts, America Identity Based on Alternate History. Sarah Gailey would join me in studio tomorrow. Hope you join us then. I'm Robin Young. Anthony Bourdain says he's no activist, but he became one for Wasted, a new documentary about food waste. This is an area, this is an issue that goes fundamentally against my instincts as a long-time working cook and chef, where we were taught from the very beginning that one just does not waste food. Next time, Here and Now. Join us for Hour 2 of Here and Now today at noon on Utah Public Radio. You're listening to Utah Public Radio, a statewide service of Utah State University and the College of Humanities and Social Sciences. KUSR Logan, KUSK Vernal, KUSL Richfield, KUST Moab, KCEU Price, KUSUFM Logan, and also heard at upr.org.